Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is a new gold rush going on right now, but this one is different. It has nothing to do with minerals or oil or any other traditional commodity. It's not what we've seen with cryptocurrency. It may have to do with the stock markets, but not always. And yet it's a form of investment, one that should continue to pay off for decades to come. I'm talking about the rush to buy up song catalogs, the rights to material created by some of the biggest artists on the planet. You've probably heard of some of these transactions. Everyone from The Killers to Barry Manilow to Silverchair to The Beach Boys to members of Alice in Chains have cashed out. Imagine Dragons netted $100 million, Justin Bieber $200 million, The Chili Peppers $140 million, and Bruce Springsteen sold his music for over half a billion dollars. There are about a dozen well-capitalized companies in this game. They're spending billions of dollars on hundreds of thousands of songs. Who are they? Where's this money coming from? If someone is buying, who's selling? Who sets the price? If you're a successful musician, what are the advantages to selling your life's work? How long has this been going on? And what do these big catalog sales mean for the future of music? Let's find out. This is a primer on the stampede to buy and own the greatest music of all time. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this episode is all about high finance, the big money game of buying up song catalogs. Like I said, you've probably heard about some of these deals over the past couple of years. I've actually been keeping a running list, and I've tracked somewhere around 220 of these sales, but that's incomplete. My spreadsheet has just the reported sales. The music industry being the opaque box that it is, I'm sure that there are plenty missing from my list. So, what is going on here? Why would an artist who has spent their entire life making music part with those songs? To get some answers, we have to deal with some history. First of all, when we say song catalog, we mean all the songs an artist has had a hand in creating. That is, they have written it all or a portion of these songs. That means they may own a piece of the publishing of these songs. Okay, what's that? Publishing is how you monetize music. We call it publishing because this practice descended from the time professional songwriters sold their music as printed sheet music. This dates from at least the late 19th century. The songwriter wrote the song and had a deal with a publisher who published the book on paper 
as sheet music and songbooks, and then distributed those hard copies of the songs to stores. Publishers collected the money from those sales and shared in the profits with the songwriter. Publishing became much more complicated when we started recording music on cylinders and rotating discs at the beginning of the 20th century. Then came movies, radio, television, all the different formats like vinyl, tape, and CDs, then digital downloads, and now streaming. Through all this, the publisher represents the interest of the songwriter, the lyricist, and all the composers to make sure that when their music is used for commercial purposes, they are properly compensated. Now, let's talk about copyright. It's just that, granting the right of someone to copy an intellectual work. Copyright is a legal concept that goes back centuries to the days of the first printing press in the 15th century. If you wanted to copy something, you had to secure permission, the right, to copy from the author. And if you didn't, that's called piracy. Copyright is one of the foundational concepts of Western law. If we look at music, there are two types of music copyrights. The first is the composition, which is the song itself. It's something that you can write down in a notebook or as musical notation, something like that. Then there's the sound recording. This is the audio representation of the song. So you've recorded it, it's on tape or a hard drive or whatever, and can be listened to at any time. The master sound recording is your finished product, the thing from which all copies are made. Now, to keep things simple, I'll generalize by saying that the composition copyright stays with the artist, while the sound recording copyright usually resides with the artist's record label. Whenever the song is played, performed, sold, or streamed, publishing income is generated. Okay, how much? Well, it depends on the contract the artist has with the label and the publisher, plus the rules of copyright of any given country. But the bottom line is that publishing is usually the artist's greatest source of income when it comes to their music. That income is paid out to the artist on a regular basis. Could be, I don't know, every month, every quarter, every six months, every year. It all varies by contract. And this is the publishing income that's the main focus of this new breed of companies. However, some artists are savvy or lucky enough to also own their master sound recordings. They dictate who can copy and distribute their work, not the record label. Owning your masters is a big, big deal. It's another source of income. And if the master sound recordings are available, these new companies are very interested in those too. So that's a little legal background. We'll go a bit deeper after we hear from a band who sold the publishing rights to all their songs from the time they formed until 2020. The purchaser was a company called Eldridge Industries, and they invest in everything from insurance to real estate to music. So how much did they pay the killers for all those songs released prior to 2020? No idea, because the price was never revealed. But given that this song alone has been streamed more than a billion times just on Spotify, and the fact that this song will not leave the British charts, even though it was released in 2004, it has to be a lot. And I mean, a lot. I'm going to guess wildly, but given the enduring popularity of the killer's music and the fact that they've sold 30 million albums, I'm going to guess that Eldridge Industries paid them in excess of $100 million. Oh yeah, that's a lot, but let's look at the calculations. 
Eldridge would have looked at how much publishing income the killers generate each year and offered a multiple of that number. So let's say that these songs reliably generate, I don't know, $10 million a year in publishing. Again, just a total guess. If this deal is like a lot of the others, the killers would have been given 10 or 15 times that amount in one big lump sum. Now, this is the money the killers would have earned had they stayed together for years and decades to come. Decades. A deal like this simply gives them all the money right now, all the money that they would have earned right now to do with as they please. Meanwhile, it falls on Eldridge Industries to figure out ways to maximize revenue from the killer's catalog. They need to pay off their investment to the band, that $100 million or whatever, and also they need to make a profit for the company and its investors. So if you were the killers, would you take it? A hundred million bucks right now? There are some very compelling reasons why you would. And let's start with taxes. If you're getting regular royalty checks every three months, six months, whatever, governments tend to look at that as a salary and the artist will be taxed accordingly. Well, how much? Well, that again, depends on the jurisdiction. This is income tax. But the tax rate could be very, very, very high, 50% or greater. Back in the 70s, a lot of British bands were forced in what was called tax exile because the British government was taking so much of their income. In 1971, the Rolling Stones were required to pay 93% of all their earnings in taxes. They got to keep 7% of what they earned, 93%. And that's why they moved to France as tax exiles, which is why the next album was called Exile on Main Street. All right, back to present day. If an artist sells their catalog to one of these companies, governments tend to look at that income, that lump sum, as a capital gain. And the tax rate for capital gains is substantially lower than standard income tax. So instead of paying, I don't know, 50% in taxes, the artist pays 20%. And when you're talking about tens of millions of dollars, that 30% makes a big difference. Getting all that money up front also means that you should never, ever, ever have to worry about the financials of your band going forward. You're sitting on this big pile of money. You can still make more new music that you will own because remember, the purchaser is only buying your back catalog, the stuff that is guaranteed to make money. So anything you write in the future is still yours. And you can still make boatloads of money by touring. And before you ask, the artist does not have to pay the company to perform the songs that they sold. There are other advantages too. Estate planning. You can determine what will happen with your money and all your property when you die. So many stars, from Elvis to Jimi Hendrix to Prince, died without wills or died without having their affairs in order. And even though they're dead, they continue to generate tremendous income. So there are lots of fights over who owns and earns what. Now, think about what else a band could do with all their future earnings right now. Well, activism, philanthropy, investments in non-music ventures, experiments with other forms of art. And, of course, you're protected from any future economic downturn that may result from, say, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic. If the artist is smart, and most of them are, they will put that lump sum payment to work for them. And that could mean far more money than what they'd ever earn from just the music. Here's a band that also sold back in 2020. Imagine Dragons parted with all the music they'd written to that point. It all went to a company called Concord Music Publishing. And like I said, how much they get? A hundred million dollars. 
Let's go through some of the artists who have sold their catalogs. Like I said, I've been keeping a running list of this phenomenon since 2020. All these figures are in U.S. dollars. Huey Lewis in the News, $20 million. Jeff Beccaro, the drummer from Toto who died in 1992, his estate earned $30 million. Stevie Nicks, her share of Fleetwood Mac's publishing was worth about $100 million. Same for Justin Timberlake, $100 million. Neil Young, $150 million for just a 50% share in his catalog. Sting got $300 million. Genesis and all their post-Peter Gabriel material, $300 million. Bob Dylan, $400 million for his publishing and another $200 million for all the masters he owned. And Bruce Springsteen, an insane $550 million. These guys decided to part with the publishing and all the songs prior to 2020. The company they sold to is called the Hypnosis Song Fund, and we'll talk more about them in just a bit. And they were reportedly paid $140 million up front. And the portfolio includes monsters like this. Back with more in the brave new world of buying and selling song catalogs in just seconds. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Buying and selling music catalogs is not new. This kind of horse trading has gone on for decades. For example, there was the infamous sale and resale of Beatles songs. In the beginning, this would be February 1963, the publishing for the Beatles music was handled by a company called Northern Songs. The owners were Dick James, manager Brian Epstein, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney. Two years later, Northern Songs became a publicly traded company. At this point, Ringo and George also got small stakes in the business. They weren't happy with their share, but that's another story entirely. After manager Brian Epstein died in 1967, the business affairs of the Beatles were in shambles. Relations between the group and Dick James' music soured, and Dick James wanted out of Northern Songs. That's when he sold his share to a company called ATV Music, without giving any notice to John and Paul. They were not happy about this, and offered to buy Dick James' share. Don't give it to ATV, give it to us. But they were unsuccessful. Meanwhile, Alan Klein, the American who succeeded Epstein as their manager, got into a fight with ATV over the Beatles' share of the publishing. Very, very long story short, 
they did not get the deal they wanted, so the Beatles sold their piece of Northern songs to ATV. By January 1970, ATV owned 99% of the Beatles' publishing. This financial tension went a long ways towards the Beatles breaking up a few months later. Paul McCartney was especially stung by this. He learned the hard way about the value of owning the publishing to popular musics. So if he couldn't own his own music, the music he made with the Beatles, he decided that he would bulk up his financial holdings by buying the catalogs of others. He started in 1973 buying a company called Norvat Jack Music, which contained many of the songs by Buddy Holly, one of McCartney's idols. Other purchases followed, and the result was a very nice income stream from the catalogs that he controlled. In 1983, McCartney was doing some work with Michael Jackson, and they got to talking about business affairs. The money is in publishing, Macca counseled Jacko. He who owns the publishing controls the world. And this was advice that Jackson never forgot. In 1985, ATV Music, that company with the Beatles Publishing, went up for sale. 4,000 songs, including 250 from the Beatles, which is pretty much everything they ever wrote, as well as tracks by the Rolling Stones, Elvis, and Bruce Springsteen. Jackson then outbid McCartney, paying $47.5 million for this catalog. Macca was not pleased. I mean, I thought we were friends, Michael. Fast forward to 1995. Jackson was having financial issues, so he sold half of this catalog to Sony Music for about $100 million, so very nice return on investment. In 2006, Jacko was having more financial issues, so Sony retained an option to buy 50% of Jackson's remaining share. So that means Sony would own 75% of the Beatles' publishing. And at that point, the catalog was valued at about $1 billion. Then Jackson dies in 2009. The remainder of the catalog transfers to Jackson's estate, And in 2016, the rest of his shares in ATV Music are sold to Sony for $750 million. Two years later, Paul McCartney comes back in, launches a lawsuit related to a new American copyright law. And in 2017, a court ruled in his favor. So after 50 years, Paul McCartney finally regains control of his music. John Lennon's songs, however, will remain with Sony until 70 years after his death. None of his heirs will see the benefit of that money until sometime after 2050. So you see why artists are so concerned about publishing? Here's another guy who made good bank by selling his catalog to a company called Harborview Equity Partners. We don't know how much he got, and when I asked him, he wouldn't tell me. He just smiled very, very, very widely. It's Derek Wibley's songs written for Sum 41. Another important development in the field of putting song catalogs to work came in 1997 when David Bowie and an investment banker named David Pullman created a financial instrument called Bowie Bonds. To use Wall Street speak, 287 songs from 25 albums recorded before 1990 became asset-backed securities. In exchange for forfeiting royalty income for a period of 10 years, Bowie received an immediate payment of $55 million. He used that money to buy up the rights to songs he lost to his former manager, Tony DeFries. Meanwhile, the buyer of the bonds, Prudential Insurance, thought that they were getting a nice return because Bowie royalties were outperforming other asset-backed securities like treasury notes. 
At the time, though, people thought that Bowie was crazy giving up his songs like this. But Bowie knew what was coming. He was studying this new thing called the Internet, and he knew that it was going to completely disrupt the music business. And he knew that old school record royalties were going to drop, which is exactly what happened, especially when Napster and all the other file trading programs popped up. Bottom line was that after 10 years, record sales had dropped so much and royalties on these sales had dried up so much that Bowie bonds hit junk status. 2007, Bowie swoops in and the songs revert back to him along with their income. So Bowie made a $55 million bet and he won. Bowie wasn't the only person to bet his royalties against the market. James Brown, the Isley Brothers, and a few others tried the same thing, but not with the same success. And by the time we got to about 2011, the idea of packaging songs this way was pretty much dead. Which brings us to the current situation. Like I said at the beginning, there are approximately a dozen companies buying up song catalogs these days. Primary Wave, Concord, Round Hill, Iconic Artists, Reach Music, Kilometer Music Group, and Iconoclast. That's just a short list. Then you add in the publishing arms of labels like Universal and Sony and Warner, who are also scooping up catalogs, usually of artists who have been their signings for years. One of the biggest and best capitalized companies is the Hypnosis Song Fund, which was started by a Quebec-born former record plugger named Merck Mercuriatus. Since about 2020, Hypnosis has bought publishing from Neil Young, David Crosby, Blondie, Chrissy Hind, Barry Manilow, Shakira, Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac, country star Kenny Chesney, and Leonard Cohen, among many, many others. Merck's biggest acquisition to this point has been Justin Bieber's catalog. This happened in early 2023, for which Bieber was paid $200 million. The day after that deal closed, I was at Merck's house in the Hollywood Hills to talk about these catalogs. Are we the first person to come up with this concept of buying catalogs for... No, no, no. People have been you know, buying catalogs and selling catalogs, particularly the major record companies, for years. But I'm decades. talking about on this but, industrial scale. Yeah, from, I mean, what I wanted to do was to establish songs as an asset class and for institutional investors and for the stock market to understand that when these songs become successful, you know, they become a part of the fabric of people's lives, they become a part of the fabric of our society, and therefore, they have very predictable and reliable income. And that predictable, reliable income is investable. That's why we invest in things like golden oil. But in fact, songs are even better because, you know, if you're living your best life, you're doing it to a soundtrack of great music. And equally well, if you're being challenged, you know, whether it's through a pandemic, whether it's through inflation, high interest rates, recession, whatever it might be, you're taking comfort and you're escaping with great music. So great music is always being consumed, right? Whereas golden oil can always be consumed. If your pocketbook gets hit, you have to, to, to you know, ration yourself, mm -hmm. if you like. But with music, particularly now in the streaming era where, you know, for 11 you know, $12 a month, you can get everything you want, you know, for the entire month, there's no better value to that. So that's why we've gone from, 
you know, the benchmark for extraordinary success being the platinum record, which, you know, as you know, in Canada is 50,000 or 100,000 mm. copies. And in 80, America, 80,000 now. Is it 80,000 now? Here in, in America, it's a million copies in a country that has 360 million people in it. That one in 360 immediately tells you that the average person might have loved music, but they didn't love it enough to put their hand in their pocket and pay for it. Now they've been replaced, that one in 360 people has been replaced by 100 million homes that have a paid-for streaming subscription, you know, music streaming subscription. So the customers, the paying customers, gone from one in 360 to being one in 3.6. So, you know, that's really what's at, at, at the heart of it. And, and, and then the second thing was to take what's a pretty broken publishing business where the big companies have 20,000 songs per person and are creating new songs every day and don't have time or bandwidth to be able to work the incredible hits that are in their catalogs. Um, and we've replaced that with song management. You know, as you know, my, my job has always been to be an artist manager. I can't play the guitar, I can't sing a song. What I bring to the table is responsibility. Um, and now I'm putting the same responsibility that I used to put into managing people like Elton John or Guns N' Roses into managing great songs like Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This. Um, so that's the difference. More on the subject of buying and selling song catalogs after this. The business of buying and selling song catalogs is only going to grow, especially with the number of heritage artists, which are the older acts who want to put their affairs in order before they die, growing by the day. So let's go back to Merck Mercuriatus of the Hypnosis Song Fund for more detail. How do you determine the valuation of a catalog? It's a multiple of annual earnings? Um, people, sometimes people look at it as a multiple of annual earnings. We look at it from the point of view of what is, you know, what's the ROI, what's the return on investment going to be, um, and, or the IRR, um, depending on which, you know, which terminology you like to, to use. But the, the bottom line is, is that you know, money costs what it costs at, on any given day. And you're going to go through and you're going to determine what the value is based on, you know, like to, in today's world, the most important value factor besides the predictability and reliability is, you know, how is your song, how is your set of songs performing in a streaming world relative in, in growing relative to the rest of the market, right? If you're, if you've got, you know, 70 million, you know, li monthly listeners on Spotify, your catalog is going to be worth a lot more than if you've got 10 million monthly listeners on Spotify. So I can understand why somebody would want a Springsteen catalog, a Pink Floyd catalog, or any of the, the heritage artists. Uh, what is the advantage of, of a, like a Bieber or an Imagine Dragons or a Killers or some of these you know, contemporary artists who uh, are selling? Well, we have, an, you know, we have an incredibly diverse catalog, right? So we have the great Canadians of old, whether that's Neil Young or whether it's Leonard Cohen, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, we have Shawn Mendes' biggest songs. We had Justin Bieber's biggest songs before we bought Justin's share of the catalog. And the very simple difference is, is that having established songs as an asset class, you know, you've got a few different factors. One is, you know, 
copyright law in general, and it's just been improved in Canada. For 70 years. Is 70 years after the death of the last co-composer, right? So we've paid an average 15 times multiple for our songs, and we have you know a, an income stream that's going to last for about 101 years, right? Now, if you're you know, a Bruce Springsteen fan, and I am, I bought, I didn't buy Born to Run the day that it came out, but I bought Darkness on the Edge of Town the day that it came out as a 14-year-old. Um, you know, at, at 58 or 59 years old, I am, you know, the youngest, in terms of the mass, mm. right, of at end of the Springsteen following in many ways or maybe 50 years old is the youngest end of, of the Springsteen following right now Bruce Springsteen is going to be somebody that if you're a good parent you're going to tell your 13 or 14 year old kid about Bruce Springsteen and you're going to want them to learn about Bruce and you're going to want them to become Bruce fans right but having said that you know Justin Bieber's fans have 60 years or 70 years in front of them as opposed to 30 years okay. in front of them. That makes sense. And Bruce Springsteen has about 17 million monthly followers, monthly listeners on Spotify versus Justin Bieber's 80 million monthly listeners. As I sit here today talking to you, Hypnosis has spent 3 billion US dollars acquiring the rights to 60,000 songs. Here's just one of them. Soundgarden and Fell on Black Days. The Hypnosis Song Fund owns the share of the song once held by Chris Cornell. In fact, Hypnosis owns all of Chris's former shares and all Soundgarden songs and all his solo material too. We're talking about lots and lots of money here. How are these companies going to make back these massive investments in purchasing catalogs? Here's more from Merck Mercuriatus. You're, you're going to be, un your whole thing now is to unlock and exploit the value in these songs. Um, can you, okay, so there would be obviously streams and sales. There'd be radio airplay. There would be uh, various syncs. What, what else is there? Uh, licensing samples? There's all, you know, interpolations. You know, we've had the number one record in the U.S., you know, or had a number one record in the U.S. last year with Nicki Minaj's Super Freaky Girl, which is an interpolation of Rick James' Super Freak, which obviously was also interpolated into MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. And you got a piece of all that? Yeah. And in 20 years' time, it'll be interpolated again and be another number one record. And in the middle of that period, it'll be used as 20 different samples. And, you know, it'll be used in movies and TV commercials and video games. And most importantly for me, we will celebrate Rick James in a way that he hasn't been able to be celebrated because we've got the bandwidth to be able to do it, right? So Rick James is much more than just Super Freak, right? If you go back and you listen to Prince, Prince will tell you how important Rick James was and Prince will tell you that you know you don't get to Prince without Rick James being there first. Rick James was a serious player. He was a serious songwriter. He was a serious arranger. He was a serious producer. You know, Rick James was was the real deal. And we have, as the custodians of that catalog, a real responsibility 
you know, particularly, you know, if you're in Toronto or Canada where Buffalo was just, you know, over the road, you know, Rick James and, and obviously Rick was in, in, in Toronto with the minor birds mm-hmm. and Neil Young, you know, 13 or 14 years before Super Freak. Um, you know, we have a responsibility to make sure that Rick James is celebrated as one of the great, great artists of all time. Some people are saying that because you're going to be so focused on unlocking the value of these older songs, which are the greatest songs of all time, they would not be worth what they're worth if they weren't, that this will have a suppressing effect on new artists. What do you say to that? Well, Because you know, you'll look, be flooding the market with this music. So, you know, one of the things that comes along with streaming... When we started Hypnosis, there were 30 million paid subscribers to music streaming services around the world, right? Today, there are over 600 million, right? Depending on whose research you're looking at, by the time we get to a decade from now, we'll have as many as 2 billion paid subscribers, right? What that does is it gives the music industry a level of data that it's never had before, right? Okay. right? Because everything is digital and everything is real time and there's real data there, right? So people print these articles saying, oh, you know, 70% of the world is listening to catalog now and only 30% of people are listening to new music and mu- new music is dying. That must mean that new music is dying, right? As if that's something new. And that's bullshit, right? Because the bottom line is, is that that 70-30 split was always a 70-30 split. You just didn't have the data before is that to so? know that. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So, and we're still talking catalog <coughs> is, defi- uh, is is considered stuff that's two years old. Call older. it 18 months, two years older, okay. you know, t- two years older, right? So, you know, when you were growing up, right, when I was growing up, you know, for every new record that we bought, we bought... I was you listening know, to my Doors record. We, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like you know, I, every time I would buy a new, you know, Yes record, I'd buy an old Doors record or an old Beatles record or an old Jimi Hendrix record or or, or or something like that. If you're going to invest, you want to invest in something that you understand and care about, right? Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of things out there, but you know, music. People tend to view music as entertainment. And it's not. Music is like food. Mm. You know, we need air, we need food, we need water, and we need music, right? Movies are nice, right? Art is nice. And yeah, to some degree we need them, but we don't need them the way that we need music, right? If you, you know, when I'm in London, I'm on the subway all the time because it's the fastest way to get from point A to point B. If you're on the subway at 8 a.m. in London, it won't be any different to Toronto or, or, or New York. You will see people going to, to work and they will have their headphones on, right? And people think, oh, yeah, they're, they're being entertained as they get from point A to point B. No, they're not. They're getting fortified, right? Like they're, they're getting something out of music that's going to help them put up with the amazing things that happen in their day and with the b- that happens in their day as well, right? And, and you know, this is why, you know, I was saying before, if times are good, music is the soundtrack. If times are, are difficult, music is the soundtrack, right? This wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the streaming revolution mm-hmm. because, you know, the streaming revolution, as I was explaining before, has brought that passive consumer to the table, right? What used to be the person, you know, in the hundreds of millions that never paid 
is now paying something. Even the person that, that, that you know, would buy six or seven CDs a year for, call it, you know, somewhere between 60 and 90 bucks is now paying 120 bucks, right? So, you know, and, and that's by the millions as opposed to by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I like to tell people that uh, who, who complain about the way the music industry is run right now, there are only, there are millions of us who buy thousands of dollars worth of music every year. Sure. But there were billions of people who only buy a few things every year. Yeah. And if you can tap into those people, that's where the money's yeah. to be made. And there's actually billions that wouldn't buy anything. Well, yeah, it's true. Yeah. The buying and selling of song catalogs has picked up substantially over the last couple of years, and it's no doubt going to continue for some time because there are still a lot of treasures out there. Imagine what Pink Floyd's catalog might go for, or Metallica's, or here's one, U2. The biggest price, of course, would be the Beatles, but given what Paul and Ringo and the estates of John and George have gone through, I I just can't see any of those songs going up for sale again, ever, at least not in the near future. You don't have to sell all your catalog either. Acts like Korn, Tom DeLonge, Dave Navarro, and many others have sold just a portion of their portfolio of songs. And it's not just artists are selling. Record producers usually have a piece of the action for any record in which they're involved. They can sell those rights too. Bob Rock, for example, sold his stake in Metallica's Black Album. He was getting royalties from that, and he sold them. And Steve Lillywhite, who produced records for everyone from Susie and the Banshees and the Psychedelic Furs to The Killers and Peter Gabriel and U2, sold his royalties. Bob Ezrin, Jimmy Iovine, and Jack Antonoff have also sold their producers' portions. Songwriters, and also people who often work in the background, are also in on the act. And then there are the estates of artists who have passed on. They're looking to maximize the legacy of the artist. And one way to do that would be to sell some or all of a song catalog to a professional company who can do that, who can extend that legacy, who can keep that money rolling in. There's lots more to come. Meanwhile, keep an eye and ear out for more and more older songs to show up in popular culture. Movies, TV, commercials, video games, samples, covers, interpolations. A lot of investment, billions and billions of dollars, has to be made back, which means the lifetime of these songs has to be extended as long as possible. What does that mean for popular music today? Are we going to be so overwhelmed with older music that new artists will not have a chance? We'll see. If you want more of this sort of thing, there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available for the asking. Just head over to any podcast platform and they're there. I've always got a lot more to say on Musical Banners at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Get the free daily newsletter too. Plus there's always Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And I can be reached anytime through alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.